This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the doctors and a big goodbye to one of them who is departing after 15 years. We just heard it, so you only got it a few seconds before us. That's I think we don't get all their memos. Anyway, <laughs> um, in the studio with me today is Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. Yes, very good to be here. How, how amazing was the fog this morning, by the way? Did, uh, did where you... I live, northwest oh, of the city, not it. amazing at all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and we... some of us didn't rise early enough for the fog. <laughs> uh, morning, you need Dr. to Ray. borrow my morning. baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I have an eight-year-old. He yeah. gets up in the morning, can Been feed there. himself breakfast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that was well worth it. Uh, <laughs> well worth it training yeah, you've been you've been through it you've done your time well we uh, we have a huge show today folks it's the um it's the australian science uh, australian society for medical research show today where we bring in a whole lot of these medical research people and um we're going to do some news before that but we have the asmr medalist for the year on the phone in just a little while and then we have three uh young researchers sitting out in the green room who are you know they Desperate to get in here, I think, actually. Or desperate to get it over with, one or, one or the other. Um, so we're going to start off with some news and then we'll have some more fun. What do you got for us, Dr. Lauren? Uh, well, I've been learning about icebergs, actually, this weekend. Um, so I'm sure many of our listeners have probably heard about this Larsen Sea ice shelf in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has slowly been breaking away for quite a long time, uh, but it's accelerated recently. So in a couple of weeks in May, it actually, um, the rift in the shelf actually grew by 17 kilometres, and mm-hmm. it's now only hanging on by 13 kilometres. So it's, it's, it's very huge, close. The, the total length of the rift is like, 100 cases of yeah, it's, it's yeah. massive. It's a, and it's a huge, chunk it's a huge chunk of ice. Yeah, <laughs> so we're talking about a chunk of ice the size of Kangaroo Island. So it's 5,000 square metres. It's right. it's a really big one. And they're saying if when it, when it does break off, it'll be one of the biggest icebergs that's ever been recorded. Mm. Um, but it is, you know, obviously brings up this whole um, idea of, of why is it accelerating. Mm. And they, the um, has been published uh, recently. So the authors um, from Swansea University College uh have heading this project called Project Midas. So they've been uh, observing the iceberg breakup over time using satellite. And they are being very careful not to directly link it to, to climate change, but they have said that uh, Larsen A and Larsen B that have already both broken off, they do believe that that was because of the, the increase mm. in, in sea temperature. So I don't think it's a huge jump to, to consider that might be what's happening. Um, but what I was finding really fascinating, and I never realised this, is when you think about you know, the ice shelf breaking off and becoming an iceberg, people often kind of think about up north in the Arctic where it you know, falls off really dramatically. So in Greenland, mm. you, know, you see them sort of falling into the water. It doesn't yeah, happen yeah. down here. So it'll very slowly detach. But because it's already floating on the water, it actually won't change sea levels. Yeah. It's just going to yeah. do what it was doing before. But what possibly might change the sea levels is the fact that the glaciers that are actually leading down onto Larsen Sea and feeding that ice shelf, once the ice shelf breaks away, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the glaciers then directly feed into the ocean. Yeah. And they're saying this won't happen, but if the glacier was to completely empty itself down into the ocean, global sea levels would rise by 10 centimetres. So it's a big glacier. Yeah, that's a big <laughs> that's chunk. That's a lot of water. You pull the cork out, these things tend to move. Mm-hmm. And, and the interesting thing with some of these glaciers, I know they they look all normal from above, but mm. when they look at them underneath, so the, the, the interaction between the bottom of it and the land, mm. oh, you know, of Antarctica, yep. 
um, they often there's water there, you know, like yeah. so it's it's like you're kind of um, you know getting the surface oiling it up for yep. for a slipperier slope. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's it's pretty amazing. But the, I mean, the numbers are just what do my head in. That is such a big iceberg. It's yeah. such a lot of ice. You could live on it for a while. Yeah, you really could. Oh, really I reckon could. people will probably do that. Yeah, yeah. Set up some sort of camp on it because it's yep. huge. Yep, it's it is. Huge. It is. Yeah. But if you're interested in seeing what what's happening, they um of course are, are tweeting. So there's a Twitter mm. feed, um Project Midas and projectmidas.org is the website and they're basically monitoring it very closely because given that that you know that crack increased 17 kilometers in two weeks we think it's probably going to be fairly soon that it yeah comes off completely well, it's kind of a big lever now isn't it like you've got it's like a fridge door. That's it. That's it's going to hang on a little bit. Exactly. And where the crack's extended to now is sort of an area of softer ice as well. Mm. So it's sort of now, you know, not a huge amount holding it on. One thing I find fascinating is this discussion around whether or not it's completely attributable to climate change. It, my view on that is mm. I actually don't give a shit. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, if if there is a 5% chance that it is, mm-hmm. that's just one more nail in yep. a very, very well-nailed-in coffin. Yep. It, it, you don't actually need this to be, you know, but if, yep. if, if it was just a 5% chance, I suspect it's more like a 90% chance, but yep. if it was just a 5% chance, we should be thinking, shit, yep. yeah, this is bad. So that's it doesn't, it. We, there's always this push at the moment, especially in the media, you know, oh, we can't 100% say, well, I don't care if you can only 5% yeah. say, that's still bad. Still bad, yeah. exactly. That's 5% so of bad. Is to, you know, it's like yeah. half a hole, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's still a hole. It's still a hole. That's anyway, it, exactly. Um, it's, still, it's still bad. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, no, definitely one to watch. Well, thanks for that uh, cheerful news, Dr. Lyon. Yeah, that's any time. Dr. Ray, what do you got? Uh, climate change from oh, a long, long yeah. time ago, <laughs> but a place far, far away. So um, this is actually really... Really cool. This is actually a geological work from Mars on the Gale Crater. So they they took data from Curiosity, mm-hmm. three and a half years of data where Curiosity spent a lot of time in the Gale Crater on Mars, which has a five-kilometer-tall mountain of sedimentary rock. Mm-hmm. And, of course, sedimentary rock often comes from lakes and rivers and, yeah, yeah. Uh, over time. And so what they did was is they actually took the the data from Curiosity on the minerals and the mineral composition and the size of... of, of what type of grains the rocks mm. formed in, and actually we were able to figure out that the Gale Crater was a very deep lake mm, okay. fed by rivers. Mm. Uh, and they could figure out its depth. Well, this is really interesting. I didn't realize this. So when sedimentation rock forms into, sorry, when riverbed forms into sedimentaceous rock, mm. depending on the grain size, you can tell, oh, it came from small grain or large grain rocks. Mm-hmm. But the grain size and mineral composition depend on water depth. Because up in the surface, there's a lot more oxidizers, so the minerals that end up being there, the iron gets oxidized, and, and those materials form one type of mineral. But when you get further down in a really deep lake, you have less oxygen, less oxidizers, There's the, the so the minerals that are formed are finer grains, and they're formed differently. Mm-hmm. And you can actually figure out what the subsequent rock should look like. So by looking at the Gale Crater, they were able to figure out not only was it a lake, it was a very deep lake, it lasted for a while, it's got evidence of drier periods and wetter periods, and then they can also see this concentration increase in salt from Mm -hmm. when the lake dried up, when they lost its atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And when they take this type of data and put it in the context of the the other data around chemical composition and physical composition, their estimates are Mars was wet Mm. 3.8 to 3.1 billion years ago. Is that? Because I know that obviously you know we've been finding some evidence yeah. of of water on Mars for quite a while now. Is that changed? Do you know no, in no, terms of the time frame or? Oh, I'm not sure about this. Yeah. Is their estimate on the time frame? Yeah. I think that probably fits my guesses with whatever the current hypothesis sure. is on, on that because okay. that that's quite a while ago. Mm. Yeah. Um, but that that's their guess for when Mars actually had water on it. Mm. So instead of 
So this is a different set of data than, say, the people did the, the satellites when they saw evidence of um, the the grooves cut in the mountains. This mm-hmm. is actually, no, this is said, this type of rock forms from riverbeds, and we could relate it back. In fact, the names of the different mineral bases, one was Murray, as in Murray Basin, and mm-hmm. one was yellow something. And, and so it, actually the mineralogy there is really what dictates, no, this mm-hmm. was really underwater, and this was a lake bed. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think that's what, because this is data curiosity took. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was yeah. pictures of the grains of rock, it was at whatever it could do for chemical composition, mm. and, and and because they got it at different positions on the mountain, mm. so lower on the mountain is where they found the 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 rocks that corresponded to the deep water, and higher on the mountains where they found the rocks for shallow water. Mm-hmm. That's a that's just I, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean that that all that technology came together, and then to be able to analyze it, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and come up with a hypothesis, just is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I I can just imagine somewhere some at some stage there was someone who was doing a geology course, and they said, well, you get you're going to have to work all this stuff out, but there's a catch. You won't be there. Yeah. <laughs> we're, yeah. just, we're just going to show you pictures. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, that, that's it. They've done that. I mean, yeah. it's just in- incredible. Mm. I mean, if you think of, um, who was it, uh, Schmidt, who went on one of the Apollo missions to the moon. I mean, they sent him to the moon because he was a geologist. Mm. Mm. I mean, there was pictures weren't good enough back then. You yeah. know, you had yeah. to send someone up yeah. to actually do it. Now they're doing even even more detailed work, yeah. but it's all they're back here on the ground. So mm. it's it's impressive. It's impressive. Speaking of impressive, oh, I'll tell you what, um, you know, it doesn't get much better than this stuff. You know, the LIGO experiment, which is just uh, spelled out for people, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, LIGO. This is the one that uh, a little while back detected the first ever example of gravitational waves in space, which was a uh, you know, perfect vindication of Einstein's work from over 100 mm-hmm. years ago, so, you know, general relativity, saying that when you have two very large massive bodies and they, they collide like two black holes, you get this shock wave essentially that ripples through space-time and they detected it. Well, they've done it again. Should I say, uh, you know, strike three? Uh, you well, know, the first um, one. Well, they turned it on and five minutes later and detected yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And then they, they had like a secondary shockwave yep, detection yep, of that one. collision later. Yeah, well, actually, they've actually, well, it's actually three different objects they've detected okay. now. So um, at, at different locations. And the last one they detected in January, which has just been announced, um, I think it was January 4th. And that one basically is uh, the furthest, or the one that originated from the furthest away. So this is a, this is something that happened three billion light years away. Wow. So that the the actual, you know, the effect of that incident has taken three billion years to reach us. Mm-hmm. Just lucky we built this thing in time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, within a few years. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's the amazing part for me. And what they're starting to do though is they're starting to see the differences in what can create these particular events. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, they can also work out. Um, you know, the, the stars that are spinning or the, the, the black holes that are spinning to make this collapse into one big black hole, they can start to work out now whether they're both spinning in the same direction, as in they both started from the same sort of origins, mm. or whether they just came together, one was spinning one way, one was spinning another way, mm. and in all different directions. And they're starting to work that out now from the data they're getting, which is just, to me, just mind-blowing. It's amazing. And that gives you more information. They've also started to confirm this idea of dispersion not being true for gravitational waves. So dispersion mm. is a very simple thing. Whenever you look through a prism, you know, it breaks up the rainbow, or, or you see a rainbow in the sky, 
that's called dispersion. Mm -hmm. Basically, different colours travel through the material at slightly different speeds. Mm -hmm. Now, the idea was with gravitational waves that wouldn't occur, and they've now started to demonstrate that as well. So there's just so much stuff coming out. Right. I mean, this is a whole new area of astronomy. And the fact that they're, they're picking up many of them, not many, but, you know, three inside mm -hmm. of a relatively short space of time, mm -hmm. and the system's continually being upgraded in terms of sensitivity mm -hmm. is, you know, pretty cool stuff. So Is it is the rate actually more than what they expected? Because I remember when they launched, I thought it was that they weren't expecting to get as many, well, <laughs> you know, positive I, I think, results. You know, I mean, I think, I think there's a difference between looking at just the sheer size of the universe and saying we yeah. should we should see these things yeah. every now and then and and also the coincidence that this thing left its location three billion years yeah. ago and has just gone past us and we just happened to turn this on within 18 months of that happening yeah. out of three billion years yeah yeah maybe they weren't expecting that yeah so there should be a number of these events but yeah. but the actual you know the fact that they've detected three already is mm. i mean to me it's a vindication of you know thousands of scientists working mm. on this project collectively across multiple locations mm. and and they are multiple locations not one experiment yeah they have to confirm with each other that they're both seeing the same thing mm. and you know just the sheer precision of these experiments is just mm. exquisite um it to me this is you know up there with the space shuttle in mm. terms of the most sophisticated devices ever built yep. by the human race i mean this is just incredible stuff so mm. it, it look I think this will just keep coming. We'll hear more and more about this and start learning about what we can actually learn mm. from these things as well. Because unlike light and x-rays and all the other things that we use in astronomy, these things travel right through dust, right through galaxies, mm -hmm. right through everything, and you still see them. So yeah. it's a different type of observation. Yeah. So you learn different things. Amazing. Anyway, I, I get excited. It's, yeah, it is very sorry. cool. I, sh I shared some of the details on Facebook. Yeah. People never look. We're going to take a break, folks, uh, for some music. And in a moment, hopefully on the phone, we'll have... Uh, this year's ASMR medalist on uh, the line from Adelaide. I think he's in Adelaide at the moment. And we'll be chatting about uh, his work. So hang in there. You're listening to 3 Triple Arts, Einstein and Gogo. 3 Triple Uh, you are listening to 3 R, and on the phone we have Professor Richard Wilkinson, who is Emeritus Professor of Public Health at the University of Nottingham, Honorary Professor of Epidemiology and Public Health at University of College London. Richard, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Hello. Hello. Now, you're currently in Adelaide, am I correct in saying that? Yes, uh, not for very long. I've uh, been given a free weekend here. Yeah. Oh, that's, nice. oh, that's pretty good. It's not a bad... There's, there's apparently a bit of wine there, so look <laughs> out for that. Wine in churches. Well, when I've sorted my slides out for my next course, I'll try it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Now, you've received the, uh, the medal, medal this year from the Australian Society for Medical Research. Tell us a bit about what that means. Um, they've got you travelling around the country, I understand it. Well, it's a great honour, and um, yes, I'm speaking in uh, seven major cities. I've done uh, uh, Hobart and um, uh, Sydney, and I'm going on to um, Melbourne and Perth, um, so quite a busy time. I'm doing seven cities. Mm. And giving talks at each one, is that the deal? Yes, uh, accompanied by dinner late in the evening. I've never had so many posh dinners in a row. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'm sure when you get back on a plane to go home, it'll, it'll knock you back to earth. Um, <laughs> that won't be a posh dinner. Um, now, tell us a bit about your work, because you, you've done uh, quite, quite a lot over a protracted period on, on the social determinants of health. Um, what do we mean by that? Well, 
many people think that we're healthier now than populations used to be because of medical care. Uh, but that's not right. Um, the main reasons are the changes in the lives we lead, which says there's less wear and tear, less stress than there used to be. Um, and so uh, our whole bodies um, last longer, basically. And much more important than the treatment you get for a disease is uh, whether you get it in the first place. Um, and that's the big change. Mm. And, and, and how does that depend on where you live and, and, and things of that nature? You know, your your SES status, as it were. Well, social position is extraordinarily important, and there's been a huge study of uh, civil servants working in London offices, and they found threefold differences in death rates between senior and junior office staff after controlling for age and uh, other things. And most of that differences, most of the differences were unexplained, unexplained by diet and smoking and um, things like that. Hmm. So, so what was the explanation for them when, when it came, well, came out of the wash? The big change is realising that social status itself, uh, low social status is an important stressor. What I've worked on particularly is the effects on whole societies of whether they have bigger or smaller income differences between rich and poor. Um, and what we've shown is that uh, the bigger the income difference is, the less healthy the whole society. Um, not only is physical and mental health affected, but um, amount of violence in a society and how well kids do at school in sort of maths and literacy tests, all sorts of things uh, are less good in more unequal societies. That's really what I'm talking about on this visit. Mm. So give, give us an example of a couple of societies, one where there is a big difference and one where there's a, a substantially smaller difference between the upper and lower income levels. Well, the, the more equal, we've just looked at the rich developed countries and at the 50 American states and shown the same pattern in each. So um, the more equal countries in our data are Scandinavian countries and when we collected our data, Japan, um, the more unequal countries are well, Australia is one of them, but Britain is more unequal, the United States is more unequal, Portugal is also an unequal uh, society. So uh, those all do worse in terms of life expectancy and levels of violence and how kids do at school, um, measures of uh, child well-being and so on. Um, this is uh, Dr. Ray. I, I, I know that um, your studies on, on our, our modern society, and you may not have collected data on say 100 years ago or even 150 years ago but is is this trend from historical record that different uh, no, or is it is it it's modern data from um, the world bank and um, uh, the organization for economic Co cooperation and development un data that kind of thing um, but it's all in the last uh, 10 years oh, or so. i understand that your study was modern data is it possible to speculate if you think these trends based on society would have historically probably been true as well or is it is it a comment on modern society that well, i don't know we, we have a larger it, upper class that maybe it's a bigger same, difference now? we see the same patterns in developing countries uh, the data of course is less good but you can see that life expectancy and uh, homicide rates um, are similarly related to levels of inequality in poorer countries so i think it's it's probably historically true uh, of uh, the rich developed countries as well
Mm. So, so Richard, in terms of um, the sort of policy shifts that this l- leans to, I mean, it, it would seem seem almost common sense to say, you know, take money from the rich and give it to the poor. Is that is it more complicated than that, though? Well, I think there are different ways of doing it. Some countries uh, gain greater equality by redistributing money. Um, for instance, the Scandinavian countries tend to have high taxes and generous benefits. But there are other countries, uh, like Japan, also some of the American states, that uh, reduce their inequalities before tax. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, uh, uh, Japan had smaller income differences um, before tax and uh, that meant the taxes weren't so high. I think we have to do it both ways. Um, the main thing to do on the tax front, I think, is to deal with tax havens. Um, but I also think that to, to reduce income differences before tax, um, I mean, the problem is the runaway incomes at the top, um, CEOs who are getting millions and so on, and that, that problem spreads down. Um, but I think the way we should be dealing with that is um, more employee representatives on company boards, um, more forms of economic democracy, if you like. Um, A lot of the European Union countries, unfortunately not including Britain, have some legislation for employee representation. Um, Germany has quite strong legislation, you know, larger firms there. Half the members of the remuneration committee deciding pay have to be employee representatives. Um, And that's that's good for a firm. It's good for productivity. It's more egalitarian. um, And I think we should be going down that road. Richard, it's Dr. Lauren here. Um, I probably following on from from those comments. Is, I'm quite interested in the Equality Trust that you're a co-founder of. Is yeah. the idea with that trust to try and make those sort of policy changes? Well, uh, we set it up initially to try and make sure people understood the damage which inequality mm. does. And I think most of the views of um, inequality are very naive that it only matters if it creates creates absolute poverty. But what it it does much more important is uh, create and increase those feelings of superiority and inferiority. It makes us all more worried about uh, status Mm. um, and judge each other more by status. Um, So there are studies now of status anxiety which show that in all income groups, in more unequal societies, people get more twitchy about status. Mm. Richard, look, uh, it's fascinating stuff and, and something that, you know, we, we all see day to day, I suppose, in, in our everyday lives. We can, you know, you don't have to walk far in any, any modern city to, to see the effects of this. Thanks so much for chatting to us. Good luck with the rest of your trip. How, how much longer are you in Australia for? Uh, the rest of this week. Excellent. Well, the whole of this coming week, yes. Well, um, have a good time. I hope you get to see um, a lot of our country, and congratulations. I'm enjoying it. Thank you. Congratulations on being the 2017 ASMR medalist. Thanks so much for chatting to us. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Professor Richard Wilkinson is Emeritus Professor of Public Health at University of Nottingham and Honorary Professor of Epidemiology and Public Health at University College London. He's also a visiting professor at the University of York and co-founder of the Equity Trust. And I don't think I missed anything. <laughs> well done. A lot of things. Now, we have a very savvy listening group and 
someone yep. has corrected you, Dr. Lauren. Picked me up, I know. Yeah. And this is one of those errors. You know when someone picks you up on something and you go, yes, that's ridiculous. So, yes, the, the ice shelf, the Larsen C ice shelf is 5,000 square kilometres, not square metres, of, oh, uh, of course. But in fairness, what Dr. Shane said, you could live on 5,000 square metres. You could still live on meters. it. Okay. And yeah. I, did, I did joke, at least I didn't say 5,000 square centimetres. So, yeah. you know, well, closer can, to the check street. That, check that in your bathtub. Um, <laughs> that's it. Well, but yes, know. no, so it is, I mean, it's huge. I mean, so, yeah, like I said before, we are talking the size of kangaroo island so yeah, it's big big and keep us honest people thank you very much that person. When, you, when you tweet or facebook or call in uh, thanks so much yeah. uh we're going to take a short break for some music and we've got some more guests coming up three triple ah. yeah we're back folks you're listening to triple r been teaching Lauren about how to turn microphones during the break. I, I learn important things every day on this show. Yeah, that's good <laughs> stuff. Um, in the studio with us now is Dr. Catherine Gibney. She's from the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. Catherine, welcome to Triple R. Hi. Now, you've, uh, I'm just going to read this out because I think this is, uh, sets the scene. You've reviewed 21 years of data from the Australian National Notifiable Diseases Surveillance System. Were you bored? <laughs> I mean, this seems like an incredibly uh, mundane challenge to do this, to go through all this. I mean, what was, I mean, what was the goal? Like, what were you going after with all this data? Well, I guess it was an opportunity to take a big, big picture look at infectious diseases in Australia. Um, so, 21 years ago, or in 1991. Um, the states and territories got together and agreed to put their data into mm-hmm. a national system, um, and, which is great and it's been very useful, but it was just, you know, a good opportunity to have a look and say, well, what has happened in the last, you know, 20 years, two decades? It's a, it's a lot of time and, you know, there were 2.4 million cases notified during that time. So, And actually, oh, that was going to be, first of all, bravo to the states because they never work together on health stuff. I mean, that that's, that's an example that is rare. People yeah. are probably not aware about that, but that's a rare example, actually, of sharing of data between states. Um, but secondly, when you say notifiable, so what 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 are we talking about here? So if I, if I go to my local GP with, uh, it could be many different communicable diseases, which ones end up being into this database? Yeah, so there's a process um, of deciding which infections um, might be notifiable and it's based on their public health importance. Mm-hmm. So um, if there's an a infection that's important because it spreads very rapidly or it's very severe, um, a lot of the infections where we have vaccines um, are made notifiable so we can track how useful the vaccine programs are and whether they need to be changed in any manner. Um, so that's that's the sort of thing. Or if there might be an intervention that needs to happen quickly, mm-hmm. um, such as, you know, meningococcal disease where you right. try and find contacts so that you can give them antibiotics to protect them against disease. So right. that's the sort of things we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And what sort of things do you see when you look at this data, this longitudinal data? Because it's, well, I guess it's not longitudinal data, it's data over a long period. But mm. um, what, what sort of, you know, trends do you see? I mean, there's been huge changes to vaccination programs and other interventions during that period, you know, so some, uh, some uh, like the AIDS campaign that went out in yeah. the, what was that, the eight, late 80s, 90s. Um, you, know, you, must, you must see that in the data. Yeah, certainly the vaccination campaigns you can see um, very clearly. So at the start of this time period, measles was still reasonably common right, in Australia yeah. and now it's, it's very uncommon. You yep. do have you know some importations and small outbreaks, but there's not much because um, we're so well vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it you see actual increases in 
notifications, um, which relates to better testing. So we now have tests that can detect, you know, small amounts of genetic material of the virus or the bacteria, the mm-hmm. PCR tests, whereas previously um, you would have to try and culture the virus or the right. bacteria or do serial blood tests for antibodies. Mm. Um, I know from the, the information you sent through to us that um, pertussis, so whooping cough, has actually increased over time, but we do have a vaccine for that. So, yeah. so what do you think might be causing that? So that's one of the ones where we now have much better tests. So we used to have to try and culture it in a lab and it was difficult. Mm. Um, and now we can we have PCR tests so you can, you can detect the DNA of the bacteria. And it is likely that doctors are testing more often. Mm-hmm. So there are those two things. But our vac- the vaccine isn't great for, t- for pertussis. It's mm-hmm. not perfect. It doesn't give lifelong immunity. And, you know, here and in America, you know, in all different parts of the world, people are trying to change the vaccination program mm-hmm. to optimise it and try and prevent... Pertussis can be really severe for really young infants, mm. um, so particularly those under six months who are too young to be vaccinated with our current mm. vaccines. So and, it's a tricky one. And that's, I mean, there's a perfect example of how powerful that data is because mm. you can actually show that and, you know, make changes. So that's wonderful. Yeah, and that's one of the things about public health is that sometimes you, you're changing the vaccine program to protect infants mm. who aren't being vaccinated. So it's really about the greater good. So you described um, uh, different tests uh, that are that are more advanced over the, the time frame. The data has been recorded. Has the type of data that's been recorded actually changed as, as well? I mean, certainly the outcomes from those different tests might be noted, but has has the data set actually evolved over this time period as well? Yes, yeah, certainly. When it started, um, they were only tracking I think thirty seven diseases, and now it's up to sixty five. So they've um, added in additional diseases. They've also added in data fields, um, so they're, they're collecting more information. Um, but they've tried to keep it fairly consistent and tried to agree, um, you know, across the, across the nation when things will change. So it, it changes and evolves slowly, but it's definitely evolved a lot. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of, you mentioned some of the vaccines are more effective than others. Are we learning that from this type of data, or is it just that People present, you know, I've had the chicken box and vaccination, but they still got it, you know. Or, you know, I know some of them wear off over time. I mean, are we learning through the data more about vaccines that we're using and saying, well, hang on, you know, these really, really, really we thought they were lifelong, but maybe they're not? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, the power of surveillance is that it covers the whole population. Um, you know, whenever a, one of these diseases that's on the list is um, diagnosed in a lab, the lab has to notify the public health agency. Um, and and we're definitely finding out more and more about these things. Vaccines are introduced with really rigorous clinical trials, but mm. not that whole kind of 10, 20, 30 years experience, which is what you get from this kind of data. Yeah. Mm. Now, data of this type is big business around the world. Uh, are we relatively unique in holding this data or are there other jurisdictions that have similar levels of, you know, very long-term data on vaccinations and their effect? I think our system is probably comparable to other, um, you know, developed countries. So the US is similar. They have more states that are probably Mm -hmm. more difficult to corral into a single thing, but they do have a national system and, you know, other European countries likewise. Um, Some... Some other places are more advanced than Australia. We don't have great um, linkage between our notifiable diseases and other sort of 
even health-related data sets, yep, hospitalizations, yep. that kind of things, whereas some other countries are better at that. Mm. Catherine, it's a very interesting area and great to see people using this these old data sets for, for something valuable today. Thanks so much for chatting to us and uh, good luck. Thank you. Dr. Catherine Gibney is from the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. We're going to take a short break, very short break. I'm looking at my colleagues here because they're going to have to get the other two guests in the moment. And we'll be back in just a moment, folks. You're listening to 3RRR. 3RRR. Three, Yeah, you are listening to 3 Drill R. We have two more guests in here. It's all this big uh, Strange Society for Medical Research Week. It's a big, big deal. So we jam-packed the studio for one week of the year. And uh, in the studio now is Amy Winship. She's an NHMRC Peter Doherty Early Career Research Fellow, Ovarian Biology Laboratory at Monash Biomedicine Discovery Institute in the Department of Anatomy and Developmental Biology at Monash University. Amy, did I miss anything? No, that was a big mouthful. There you go. And we've got Dr. Callum Roberts, who's from the Monash Children's Hospital. That was easier. (laughs) (laughs) How are you going, guys? You're good? Good, Good, thanks. thanks. Now, Amy, let's... um, start with you. You work in this interesting area, and we have talked about this a little bit on the show over the years, of the basically the, the health and well-being of um, eggs that women carry in order to you know reproduce and, and what affects those. So first of all, give us a bit of an idea of how that system works, because I'm not sure everyone's aware that you get one load when you're, when you're a kid and that's it, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. So a woman is born with all the eggs Uh, that have to last throughout her reproductive Mm -hmm. lifespan, which is in complete contrast to men where they're producing new sperm every second of the day, essentially. Um, And the other really interesting paradigm uh, is the difference in the decline of quality of gametes between men and women. So women's uh, women, as, as I said, are born with all their eggs, and the decline in their quality is quite rapid. And uh, we know that fertility plummets at the age of around 35 in women, mm-hmm. um, but we're still yet to nail down the causes of that decline. Um, Whereas, yeah, men are obviously fertile for a lot longer. So it's a really interesting paradigm. So, I mean, one of the questions I ask here is, is it a surprise? Uh, I mean, if you think from an evolutionary point of view, we just didn't live that long. In, and we certainly didn't have babies um, that late in life uh, when we were wandering around on the savannah being eaten by tyrannosaurus. Um, no, not tyrannosaurus. <laughs> uh, Saber-toothed tiger. Saber-toothed tigers. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and so we, we've evolved to have a period where these things should work. I mean... Is it a big surprise that these things just don't last that long? Probably not, but um, now with all the lifestyle changes and Mm. women wanting to delay um, childbearing for career purposes, um, it's sort of not fitting in with our current lifestyle. So um, it's really interesting how we're trying to shift um, our biology and um, medicine's trying to now kind of keep up with that and develop new strategies to prolong female fertility. Mm. I mean, there's a whole of the neurodegeneration diseases that also don't fit with our lifestyle, which wouldn't have occurred yeah, back in the Savannah absolutely. days. Um, tell us a bit about the, the sorts of things that cause the degradation, because I understand this is an all-natural part of it is the environment we're in or if people have cancer therapies or whatever else. I mean, what what is causing the degradation? Yeah, we definitely have a natural decline in quality with ageing, and it's caused by natural metabolism and oxidative stress Um, but environmental factors like DNA damage like UV exposure anti-cancer treatments um, environmental toxins can all affect uh, the DNA of the eggs Mm -hmm. 
And as those eggs are really long-lived, um, any accumulation in DNA damage is going to lead to a decline in their quality. Mm. I, I know when people go through any sort of chemotherapy, they actually have the eggs removed and stored, right? So is, that, is, is there any degradation of the eggs in that process or is that a completely foolproof process? No, but that's one option. But for, for young girls, like prepubertal girls, that's not an option at mm-hmm. all. Um, so that's a, a really important area of research to see how we can protect the eggs in those younger cancer patients. And also um, egg storage is quite expensive and it's not yeah. available to all female cancer patients. So we're looking at more accessible um, strategies to preserve fertility and egg quality for those women. Mm. And can I ask, why why can't you do it for the younger girls? What, what prevents that? Uh, so they need to be... Um, in the menstrual cycle, essentially. So uh, you can't preserve the immature eggs. So once they're sort of um, in that growing stage, we can freeze those down and get a good recovery rate. A lot of people are working on getting recovery from immature eggs, but so far, no luck. That's so good. And in terms of just the... Because we're talking about this thing of just being non-viable, but I'm sure there's a scenario... there, There must be a grey area where... You go from being completely healthy, you know, with your eggs to completely non-viable, but somewhere in the middle, you know, when you're, I don't know, I mean, what's the age, 40, 45 or or whatever, what are the effects of that? Because presumably it's not like switching off a light bulb here, there there must be a gradual degradation. There is that transition and in those um, sort of eggs with with poorer quality, you're going to get higher rates of miscarriage and chromosome damage in the offspring leading to um, sort of things like Down syndrome Mm -hmm. and chromosomal abnormalities in the offspring. Mm -hmm. So although you still might have viable babies, um, they might not be 100% healthy Mm -hmm. or normal pregnancies. Uh, Amy, I know in the news, I think it was a few weeks ago actually, they were looking at mice um, and basically trying to make stem cells in the mice regenerate into uh, into eggs. Is that something you think that will ever be a potential for humans? So do you think we could get to a point where we're 45 and we go, okay, let's just regrow from start? Stem cells in the ovaries are really controversial area and um, our lab, uh, a lot of labs don't really believe that it's it's a true phenomenon but it's definitely I think worth investigating and worth pursuing because it would be an interesting area but again um, it's sort of that ethical dilemma of is that how we want to mm-hmm. you know lead our lives and mm-hmm. going into the next generations I guess. And, and I have some vague recollection and it's probably about 400 guests ago so forgive me if this is complete nonsense of, of there being some evidence recently and it may have been just counted by now that 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 idea of you just get the eggs you start with and that's it not being completely true that there was some change in number and and they were reproduced later is that is that being discarded or is that still possible so most it has sort of been um, counted by right. follow-up studies that show that you can't replenish your the eggs that you're born with so once you have depletion by chemotherapy or radiotherapy you can't replenish your eggs yeah now how many we talk about i have a number of 50 in my head but something tells me that's out by about three orders of magnitude how many how many (laughs) eggs does a woman actually start off with it's actually thousands at birth but there's a really rapid um 
death in those cells. They break down just postnatally in um, early female life within the first few weeks of of life. And then it it ends up being a few hundreds over. A few hundred? Are you using 12, was it 12 a year? Uh, uh, Yes, if you... Yes, that, well, it's a normal it doesn't, does, Yeah, well, it doesn't take much to, to do the maths there and work mm-hmm. out that it's not going to last for, for very long. Exactly, yeah. yes. So do, do you think we'll get to a point where the process will, almost a standard process, where, where women will have a certain number of eggs removed in a sort of standardised procedure to just to preserve it no matter what? Yeah, um, that could be a possibility, but at the moment an egg freezing cycle is still around ten fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. God. Yes, and you might only recover a few eggs from one cycle, so it depends how many how many do you need to freeze down. So, yeah. Tough stuff. I'm going to throw another controversial one at you just because it's fun. <laughs> but but um, I think one of the issues, I was talking to someone the other day, is um, you know, we probably are getting a little bit comfortable with medical research and, and sort of forgetting that, you know, we probably shouldn't wait until we're in our 40s and 50s to think about having kids. Do you think that we need to be a, a bit more about education again and making sure people are aware of this? Definitely. I think that's what our research is highlighted because um, I think people are getting a little bit complacent and thinking that medicine will just do everything for us. But even IVF still relies on a good quality egg. Uh, You can't just make a healthy embryo and a baby with with no Mm -hmm. good quality sperm and eggs. So you still need uh, that good quality egg. And women in their 40s, you know, it's... It's hard. Yeah. And not to mention the fact that you, you don't want a scenario that comes out where it's only good for the rich. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. You know, if I got yeah. 40, 50 grand, I can, I can freeze a few eggs a few times for, mm. for my partner. But, you know, if I come from a, a less wealthy background, well, tough. Mm. You know, mm. that's, I mean, that, that's, that's not the outcome. I think really. also socially it's like, do we want to be around for our kids as well? Like mm. how, how old are we going to be when we're parents and yeah. when they're having their 21st birthday and mm. when they're having their kids? So mm. that's another factor yeah. to consider. You are speaking to all three of the people in the room here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Me, Dr. Ray and Dr. Laura. Yeah, we're, we're all older than our parents were and when we run around after our kids you know we tire definitely and stuff all right um thank you amy we're gonna now let's switch over to the kids being born so (laughs) a few of them um callum you you work at the monash children's hospital and in particular with the all the premature babies that are born first of all i mean how many what portion of of babies are born prematurely these days i mean we're we're very good at keeping these kids alive now Well, um, this is actually, it's a very common problem, both in Australia and and worldwide. So the the numbers that we're we're looking at are certainly thousands of of babies in Australia every year and millions of babies around the world who who are born prematurely. Um, That obviously, it varies because premature is anything before 37 weeks by Mm -hmm. our current definition. So being born a few weeks early may be relatively easy to cope with, but we're dealing with babies who are born at 23, 24 weeks of gestation, so about four months early almost mm. um, which can have quite uh, difficult consequences for those infants mm. let's talk about breathing because that's that's obviously your area of work what well first of all why is there a need to compensate for the breathing of these infants when they're born so prematurely and how do you go about it normally so when they're born early um, obviously babies different organ systems haven't had the chance to develop in the way that they normally would do up to the point mm-hmm. of a term birth uh, and the lungs are are a good example of that in that the babies just aren't able to breathe effectively necessarily without any help uh, because the lung is immature and it hasn't had that time to mature mm. uh, and be as, as effective as it would be. 
So, so, and, and what do we do? I mean, how do we do? We just put them in an oxygen-rich environment. Um, what I mean, what's the process for keeping them going until they're so able to deal with it themselves? We've we found it's a bit more complex than that. Um, so, um, we have a few different ways of doing it. Uh, when we first started managing these babies in neonatal units, the the go-to was to put a, a tube down into the main airway and to put them onto a ventilator. Actually, basically take over the breathing for them. That proved to be very effective. For for many babies and saved a lot of lives, but it also can cause some degree of damage. Uh, so we're now looking at less invasive ways of doing that, uh, in particular using prongs that will fit in the nose, provide some pressure and some oxygen uh, in order to allow the baby to breathe for themselves, but with some assistance from us. Mm. And that's an area we've been looking at in a lot of detail uh, in our research in recent years. I had, I had a question. Is the deficiency just that the organ isn't large enough or developed enough or is it things like the um, lung surfactants the coatings on the lungs that really facilitate that transport of oxygen into the into the bloodstream over the the air blood barrier which part is it that's 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 the bigger barrier it's the the size or things like that it's it's a combination of the two but the surfactant that you've highlighted there is an extremely important part of that so um, surfactant is a substance that sits in the tiny little air sacs in the lungs and decreases the surface tension and allows the baby to um, exchange gases like oxygen and carbon dioxide easily and preterm babies are deficient in that because it's something that typically develops much later during the course of pregnancy. So it's a very important part of that. Callum, you've been looking into this um, high flow version of providing oxygen. How does that differ from what's normally used? So high flow is a, a relatively recent uh, entrant into the scene. Um, the the advantage that it has over the more traditional uh, therapy, which is called CPAP, is that it's a much uh, simpler device. Uh, it doesn't cause uh, the kind of pressure around the nose that the CPAP prongs tend to, which can be uncomfortable for mm-hmm. the baby. Uh, it's very simple for the nurses to use, and it's very kind of patient-friendly in that because it's much smaller, much less uh, obstructive, it means it's easier for babies to come out and have cuddles, to start working on feeding. Um, and we're not just looking after baby's lungs or even just the baby. We're looking after a whole family unit, and we know that getting them that chance to bond with their parents and start learning all the things they need to do is a really important part of their care. So it helps with that. Mm. That probably ties in exactly with my question, actually, and it was uh, how long does the treatment have to be? And with this new type of treatment, can you actually you know, get, get the babies off that treatment sooner and get them home quicker? So we we haven't shown that um, so far. And in terms of how long we treat the babies for, um, we generally try and get them off any form of support as early as we can um, because it tends to get them more more quickly towards that goal of getting home with their families. Um, what we've found is that it's making things a bit easier during the time that they're in the unit as far as learning to feed and all those other things. We haven't found that it's getting them off the support more quickly. Um, so we'll continue to look at ways we might be able to achieve that in the future mm. presumably it's specific to the child too i mean the, the exact timing some do better on one than the other absolutely yeah mm. um so we've we found that actually the the cpap the more traditional mode of support still has a lot of value in particular in the more premature babies and the ones who have more severe lung disease um so it's it's a bit of a continuum there and we're trying to balance mm. obviously 
picking the most effective therapy for each baby based on their individual circumstances. Yeah. Well, interesting stuff. And for all those parents out there who uh, are in this situation, I'm sure they're very happy to see these less invasive things. I mean, there's nothing worse than a whole of the tubes going into your kid at any age. So um, to keep up the good work. Callum, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thank you. And Amy, thanks so much for talking as well. And uh, you guys, whenever medical researchers come in, they're always excited these days because of all the the extra money that has been put into medical research in this country. (laughs) Doubling of doubling of the budget you guys excited about that um, we'd always like more so. <laughs> you don't, yeah. see, we're a whole lot of physical scientists on this side of the panel going hey what about us but uh, no, that's good um, <laughs> thanks so much for coming in have a good time with uh, Australian Society's uh, Medical Research Week and um, yeah good luck with the work in the future thank you thanks. very much now, we're going to hand over to the team from Eden in a moment, so uh, we'll have to get going. Dr. Lauren, you well? Yeah, yeah it's yeah, been wonderful. I'm just, I'm just sitting here thinking how amazing it is how far technology has come. I've had a few mm. friends that have had premature babies recently, and it's amazing. We, we, the technology has improved so much, so I'm feeling very warm and fuzzy right oh, now. I thought you were talking about the gravitational wave stuff. Well, that too. The stuff, yeah. yeah, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, babies are a little bit cuter than gravitational waves, so, you okay. know. Okay. They've yeah, got that okay. going for them. Yeah. Dr. Ray, babies cuter than gravitational waves? Oh, I think that's a toss-up. It might depend on the gravitational <laughs> waves. I mean, the baby. Uh, yeah, the baby. That's a Seinfeld comment yeah, right there. Yeah, it's yeah. breathtaking. Well, some of them grow into their cuteness. Anyway. They do. <laughs> anyway, thanks so much for listening to, to us today, folks. Uh, remember, science is everywhere. It's a great day out there in Melbourne today, so get outside. But if you absolutely have to, keep listening to 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks again for paying attention to us and... And uh, for correcting us, right, Dr. Lauren? Uh, We love the fact that you listen. Um, Have a good Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.